0: We all we all know what it's like to be rejected, uh, to feel like we're not good enough, and, and that rejection sometimes kind of lingers on you like a bad smell. You know, you feel like you just can't shake it, that feeling of, of not being measured up, measured up, measuring up, or being pushed away, and that, that idea of being rejected, that is in some of our most well-known stories. You think about Cinderella scrubbing the fireplace, rejected by her ugly stepmother and ugly stepsisters, and... Even that little kid story, the ugly duckling, that's a story that in a lot of ways is about rejection. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about a Bible story that at its heart, once you get past all of the window dressing, is a story that is about rejection. It's about our rejection of God, and it's about God choosing not to reject us. So I told you a couple weeks ago that I wanted to show you how to share the gospel from the story of Elisha and the She-Bears. And I'm gonna try and keep my word tonight. So take your Bible and turn with me to Second Kings chapter number two. Second Kings chapter number two. We've only got three verses to work with tonight, but we're gonna do our best. Second Kings chapter two, and this is in verse number twenty-three. Second Kings chapter two and verse number twenty-three. The word of God says, he went up from there, that's Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you baldhead. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Well... We have our work cut out for us tonight, don't we? A few weeks ago, I started talking to you about the idea, really my conviction, that one of the best ways for us to talk about the gospel is just to talk about the Bible. To talk about the stories of the Bible. Stories that we know. Stories that we love. And stories that invariably, in some way, communicate the truth about Jesus as He is and as we need Him to be. And I tried to make the case to you that... It's really better to talk about the story of Jesus in a way that communicates a story as opposed to just laying out a sales pitch to people. I try to tell you that Jesus himself taught and believed that he was the hero of every single story of the Bible, that the entirety of the canon of Scripture is one story about God's work to rescue his people through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus. And I try to tell you that that method is effective because stories stick I could tell you a bunch of bare facts, but those just don't bear facts. That was not intentional. I could give you a bunch of empty facts, and those facts may not stick, but stories stick. Even right now, I'm willing to bet that you still remember how terrible of a baseball player I am. Well, stories stick. Man, this story really sticks, doesn't it? This story that comes to us from the time of ancient Israel, you just can't forget it. Once you read it, um, nobody has ever forgotten this story. And it seems like it's just so out of place. It seems like it's just so out of character with all of this lofty talk about The Bible being the story of Jesus and Jesus being the hero of the story. Where in the world do you fit Jesus into this passage of Scripture? How could you ever share the gospel from the story of Elisha and the She-Bears? I would submit to you that if we really do read this carefully, and if we really do understand it well and think critically about it, that this may actually be one of the simplest and best Bible stories. To share with people quickly and succinctly the truth about the gospel that we need to save us. Because when you share the gospel with someone, to really share the gospel effectively, to share the good news faithfully, you've got to give them some bad news. You've got to give them bad news about why it is they need a savior. And this story really is a story about sin. It's a story about judgment. It's a story about how a ticked off preacher, eliminated half the youth group, but it is a story that is, at its heart, about our rejection of God, and what that looks like, and the consequences that come with it. And it's kind of that angle of interpretation I want to take with you tonight as we talk about sharing the gospel from the story of Elisha and the She-Bears. I knew when I asked you as a church, what's your favorite Bible story? I knew that somebody would try and throw a curveball. And I've got it narrowed down to a handful of people who did this. My first guess would be some of the boys in the youth group. My second guess would be anybody with the last name O'Sullivan. Particularly the older O'Sullivan. How do you share the gospel from this story? Well, I think there are three lessons from this story that help you get there. The first lesson is that two sinners, and to us apart from God... God's truth does not satisfy. God's truth does not satisfy. I want to show you why you see that in this story. But to be fair, to really understand this story, you have to kind of back up from it a little bit and understand more of the historical setting here. And the place to start really is to remember that by this time, the nation of Israel is no more. The nation of Israel has fractured into two nations, the nation of Israel and then the nation of Judah and you have two separate monarchies in place in those nations and you have at times in scripture two different prophet different groups of prophets that are ministering during different periods of that history. 2 Kings chapter number 2 is the overlap of the beginning of the prophetic ministry of Elisha and the end of the prophetic ministry of his predecessor Elijah. 2 Kings chapter number 2 a big portion of the text is about Elijah who has been transfigured in the heaven, moved through kind of this fiery chariot where he's ascended to the Lord, and Elijah is an incredible man of faith, most of you know that to understand this story, you have to know that, and you know that Elijah first comes into the Bible in the book of first kings and The first thing he does that we know of from the Word of God is he goes to Ahab, who is a wicked king in the nation of Israel, and he goes to his capital in Samaria, and he tells Ahab that because of your wickedness, it is not going to rain for three and a half years until I pray and ask God to make it rain. He was a man of courage. He was a man with steel in his backbone and grit in his crawl. And he goes and he just tells Ahab, hey, here's where it's at. You need to repent or else. Well, Ahab doesn't have anything to do with that. Because Ahab is married to a high-powered queen by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel is a devoted worshiper of the false god Baal. And she has an army of prophets that eventually, at the end of 1 Kings 18, Elijah is going to have a showdown on top of Mount Carmel with these prophets. And you probably remember the story, right? Where Elijah is kind of on one side with his altar built, and the prophets of Baal are on the other side with their altar built. And the arrangement is... Whichever God's fire consumes the offering first, that's the God we'll worship. And so the prophets of Baal dance around and sing and have their uh, Baal praise choruses. And they cut themselves and holler. And they do that pretty much all day. Until Elijah finally has enough and he starts to make fun of them and Baal. He basically says, I don't know, maybe Baal's at the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he can't hear you. Holler a little bit louder. Maybe you'll get his attention. And then Elijah prays. And he basically says something like 60 words, this short little prayer. And, of course, fire from God consumes that sacrifice. That's the kind of man Elijah was. It's the kind of ministry he had. He wasn't a perfect man. 1 Kings 19 records that. But he was a man of faith, and he was a devoted man of God. And now, at the very end of his life, Elijah doesn't ride off into the sunset, but he literally rides off into the sun in a burning chariot of fire. That's exactly how I want to go. Probably not in the cards, but man, it doesn't get any cooler than that, does it? And Elijah goes up to be with the Lord. So, who's going to fill his shoes? Who's going to step into that prophetic role and take the prophetic mantle? Well, the mantle had literally fallen to Elisha, who had been Elijah's companion. And this story begins the story of the she bears uh, begins with the very beginning of Elisha's ministry. And so all of the pressure that had been on Elijah as the prophet of God in Israel, now that's on Elisha. And all of the pressure that was on Israel to listen to the voice of the prophet, to listen to and heed the words of the man of God, that's still on them. And so really the dramatic question hanging over this story is, will the people of Israel listen to Elisha? Will they treat him as a man of God? And at the very beginning of his ministry, there's a traveling group of of young people that come out of the city of Bethel, and they begin to make fun of Elisha for being follically challenged. And they say, go up, you bald head. Go up. And The Bible says that two mama bears come out of the woods and... Make 42 of them leave their meeting bruised and broken. Now, this is hard. A lot of people would read this passage of Scripture and say, Surely, God wouldn't do something like that. A bunch of kids running around. They, these kids are going to be kids. So there are a couple of periphery things that I think you need to understand. First of all, I don't know what, what, what your translation says, but the English Standard Version I'm reading tonight says that these were small boys. But the Hebrew word for small boys is really not that clear. It could be anything from a a young boy up to a young man. These are probably not kids. They're probably men who are at least old enough to know better. Maybe teenagers. Maybe even in their early 20s. Plus, keep in mind that while this does seem harsh, that when the bears attack these people, that 42 of them are wounded. Which means... There's at least 43 of them, right? Probably much more than that. So it's not just a little children's choir here. This is more like, think of this more like a roving street gang. And, and it's possible and, and even likely that Elisha felt an actual physical threat. by all of these people kind of crowding around him, mocking him. And finally, let me just point out, even though we kind of assume that the bears killed these guys, the text doesn't say that, does it? It says it tore them, and if you get torn by a bear, that could mean a lot of things, none of which are good, but it does not necessarily mean that the bear killed them. So, what's this story really about? With all that background in mind, what's this story really about? That God hates bald jokes? I hope not. But rather... (laughs) Rather, the insult, the, the real insult is not about Elisha's baldness. That's just kind of icing on the cake for these young guys. They just think they're being cute. The real insult is when they are telling Elisha, go up. Go up. What are they saying to him? They're saying to Elisha, if you are a prophet like Elijah, do what he did. Go up. Where's your chariot? You're supposed to be the man of God. Where is the heavenly escort that's coming for you? Where's your flaming Uber driver that's going to take you to God? In other words, they looked at Elisha and said, All right, old man, if you're really God's man, prove it. If you really speak for the God of Israel, show us. Prove it. Elijah got a flaming chariot to heaven, and here you are walking around like a chump. Prove it that you are The man of God. And so do you see the spiritual rejection in their words? Because what they're saying is, Elisha, you're not good enough for us. You're not impressive enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not miraculous enough. You are not the truth that we want. It's not packaged right for us. It's not appetizing enough for us. He is the prophet simply does not meet their expectations. It's worth remembering they never really listened to Elijah much either. Even after that whole deal on Mount Carmel, they were still worshiping Baal. But if you think really about what these boys do, this passage says something quite profound about how all people apart from God meet God's truth. Because apart from a work of God, they always meet it as if, you know, it's just not quite good enough. It's just not really what I'm looking for. It's just not really right for me. And if you're sharing the gospel with someone, whether you use this story of Elisha and the She-Bears or not, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but if you were, this is a great story for you to tell people to say, here's what sin really looks like. Sin looks like a bunch of entitled teenage boys who say, we are not going to listen no matter what. We are not going to do it your way. Because I'll tell you this, folks, it's getting really, really difficult today to talk to people about sin. Some of you can probably remember days when you would try and share the gospel with people, and if you just quoted Romans 3.23, you know, people would just kind of fall down at your feet and say, yeah, if the Bible says I'm a sinner, then I must be a sinner. Church, that world's gone. That's gone. People have no concept today of their sin, and people have little concept of, of sinfulness in general, and... This story does a great job of painting in very vivid terms exactly what sin is. Sin is meeting God's truth and saying, it's not for me. It's not how I want to organize my life. It's not how I want to live. It's really just doesn't fit. It's just not quite right. It's what Adam and Eve did, right? It's what all sinners do. It's what you've done. It's what I've done. And sin is the rejection of God's truth sin is doing what these men here say sin is doing what these men do here when they say you know it's just not good enough to impress me and so inwardly we really are teenage boys <laughs> spiritually apart from god that's what we are we think we know everything we're stubborn we dig our heels in we think nobody can stop us from getting the life that we want we think we have the smart answer. For every problem, for every challenge, anytime anyone presents the truth to us, we think we know better, and we're happy to tell them. That is the spiritual condition of lost humanity apart from God. And that's what you see on display in this story. And ultimately, if you read the stories of the prophets, even though we, we, I want to say idolize, but that's not the correct word, even though we make heroes out of the Old Testament prophets... And we tend to think, you know, they were such captivating preachers. They preached and everybody listened to them and delivered this incredible message. Almost unanimously, they were rejected. In fact, really, amazingly, the most successful prophet of all, you know who it was? Just in pure numbers? Jonah, of all people. The one who didn't even want to do it to begin with. He's the one that God used in the most supernatural and incredible way. But these prophets preached faithfully, and they were rejected all throughout Scripture, culminating in the one true prophet of Israel, the Lord Jesus himself. And what did they do with him? They rejected him. They killed him, saying, you know, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you prove it? Show us something so incredible. We don't have a choice but to believe, and then we will believe. And he resurrected from the dead, and we still don't believe. This passage of Scripture, this story, shows you really what sin is. It shows us that as sinful people, God's truth just does not satisfy. But how does God respond to that stubborn attitude in us? Well, that's where this text shows us that, frankly, God's judgment does not disappoint. This is a creative and elaborate method of judgment. That as far as I know, this is the only time in Scripture that God did this. But... God punishes their rejection of Him. But, when you think about this story, you've got a prophet, you've got smart alecks, you've got male pattern baldness, you've got attack bears coming out of the woods. We see all of that stuff, right? We see all of this. Let me ask you, if you look at your Bible tonight, what's the most important word in this little paragraph? What's the most important word? I don't want you to say it out loud because I think I know what it is and I think I can prove it to you. What's the most important word here? I think the most important word here is not bald and it's not bears, it's not boys. The most important word is right in the middle of verse 24. It's the word curse. Elisha cursed these guys who mocked him. Now, let me just remind you again. To understand what a curse is biblically, you have to know the difference between cursing and cussing. Alright? Cussing, we think of cussing, as what you do when you're good and mad. Really, cussing is what you do when you're bad and mad. Cursing is what you do when you're good and mad. In this case, Elisha, he's good and he's mad. He's good and mad, and so he pronounces a curse. And this curse is a declarative statement about where these guys are in relation to the law of God. He's saying to them, in other words, you are cursed because you are on the wrong side of God's law. And he pronounces that verbally in a curse. Now, to get this and figure out the part about the bears, that was not a fluke. You need to understand what God had told the people of Israel centuries before this before they came into the land of promise, through Moses. The Levitical law says this in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, 22. He's saying to the people that if you walk contrary to me, and will not what? Will not listen to me. I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, And destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. God told the people of Israel that if you refuse to listen to me, that if you live spiritually like you are an obstinate teenager, then I will turn the animals in Israel against you. And when Elisha pronounces this curse, that's exactly what's happening in this passage of Scripture. They are experiencing God's judgment on their disobedience. That God had told them was coming and God had predicted, they experienced what all of us deserve. And in many ways, this is a great people to talk, this great story to talk to people about the consequences of sin. Because here, these people refuse to listen, give demonstrative proof that they are not going to listen, and God punishes their disobedience in exactly the same way that God said He would. Now, anybody that's ever raised a child can relate to punishing disobedience. Friends, we should recognize today that our God is a God who takes disobedience to His Word seriously. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, and this is a great verse, a great verse to lodge in your mind. And this is a great story to stick that verse to. But Romans 6.23 says to us, the wages of sin is death. The price for our disobedience to God, the cost of it, what we earn for our sin... Is death. And when you share the gospel message, you are sharing good news. But the gospel is not good news unless that gospel is set against bad news. Why is the good news necessary? Why is salvation a good thing? It's a good thing because I need to be rescued from something. And what I need to be rescued from is my sin and the condemnation that my sin deserves. And if you want to illustrate that, if you want to make that come alive to somebody, you say, let me tell you a Bible story about what I said minute ago, about this ticked-off preacher that killed half the youth group. And then tell them the story and explain why this is all happening. And maybe then God would use it to make it come alive to them. Because when we say the price of sin is death, a lot of people may think, well, I'm not living the way the Bible says, but my life's going okay. I feel all right. Health's decent. Job's pay me enough to get by. My family's, you know, all happy and whatever. Got a jet ski at the lake. I mean, what's the problem? And they need to see the consequences that come upon sin. And you can tell them this. And I would encourage you to make a note of this. To be able to to really share this. That there are consequences for rejecting truth in every area of life. In every area of life. No matter where you look. Physically, your health. There are consequences to rejecting truth. There are consequences to rejecting the truth about gravity jump out of an airplane without a parachute. You'll find out the consequences. There are consequences to rejecting the truth about maintaining your vehicle. It's true that your car needs to have the oil changed every three months or every 3,000 miles. Don't do it and see what happens to your car. How much more serious then are the consequences that we incur because we reject God's truth? And because God has ordered this universe to run on His truth and we've said, thanks but no thanks. And so... You want to communicate to people the seriousness of sin when you share the gospel with them. And this is a good story to do that from. That the seriousness of sin deserves punishment from God that is worse than we feel we deserve. So you read this story, right? And you think to yourself, they just made fun of a bald guy. And God unleashed bears on them? God must really love bald guys. It's a great story to share with bald people. But... Say, look, God loves you, and here's how He proved it. But you read this, and there's probably a part of you that reads this story and thinks, "Aren't the bears just a little much? Couldn't He have just given them all like a bad cold for a couple days, or maybe one of broken an ankle or something? I mean, it's not the bears, right? You read that, and you think this punishment from God is too extreme." Folks, I want you to realize today that part of the seriousness of our sin is that it blinds us to the seriousness of our sin. And I think you can tell people that as you read and share this story with them. You can say to them something like, you may not think your sin is serious. And tell them, I may not even see the seriousness of your sin. But God's the one who determines how serious our sin is. And God sees our sin as much more serious And we do. But finally today, i would give you this lesson. You've got to get to this, I think, from this story, or you haven't shared the gospel. It is true, it is true that our sin rejects God's truth, that we don't take God's truth seriously. It is true that God's judgment never disappoints. He's always faithful to his own truth enough to judge those who refuse to live under it. But finally, I would say to you this. To really share the gospel here, you've got to be able to share with people that God's mercy never fails. God's mercy never fails. Never fails. So is there any good news here? Is there any Jesus in this story? Where do you you see the gospel? Because it looks to me like Elisha's doing his thing. Kids come out and make fun of him. Turns around, he curses them real good. Bears come out, and verse 25, it says, he just kept trucking. Just don't even call an ambulance, just keep rolling. And you think, okay, where's the gospel in this passage of Scripture? Again, I would call your attention back to verse 24, the word curse. Curse. The Word of God says this to us in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, this is from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is everything that we wish Elisha might have been. Now, I don't think Elisha does anything wrong here, but we still kind of wish, right, that Elisha would say, guys, don't worry about it. Hey, Good one. I'll get you all next time and just go on his way. We wish this passage showed us grace. What this passage does, and this is so helpful for interpreting these Bible stories to see the gospel, this passage leaves you longing for somebody to take the sting of the curse, doesn't it? You think those bears, man, that's so excessive. The judgment is so severe. Can't somebody mediate this for us? And the Bible's answer is yes, but it's not Elisha. The Bible's answer is that it's Jesus, the one who is the full and perfect revelation of God, the one true, perfect prophet of God. He is the one who was rejected like Elisha, but then takes all of that rejection into himself so that he could be rejected of God, so that the punishment would fall upon him instead of me. That's the gospel message. It is that God has not just sent a prophet, but that God's own son has come. That God's own word lived among us. And that that word predictably was rejected over and over and over again. But instead of punishing our rejection of God. God himself put his son at the cross to be rejected. To be cursed. So that you and I could be blessed. That is the story of the gospel. And so... The truth of the gospel is is in the words that aren't spoken here. It's in the negative space of this passage that you find Jesus. What you always have to do in sharing the gospel is you always have to point out that Jesus took what we deserve. He took what justly should have been mine. And this is the very central claim of the gospel that He, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin for us. Even though he knew no sin. He knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So think about that little phrase there. That he knew no sin. Jesus never lived a disobedient moment in his life. Ever. He never lived a moment where he considered God's will for him. God's truth to him, God's law over him, and said, you know, I just don't think that's for me. Just really have a better way to do it. Jesus never experienced that. And yet at the cross, he experienced every bit of it. For all the times that I had rejected God's truth, for all the times that I had rejected God's will, for all the times that I had defied God's law, he is the rejected prophet. Rejected in a worse way than Elisha was rejected. Truly rejected. Abandoned even by his friends. Rejected in some sense even by his father as he became sin for us. So that the true prophet would say to us, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So what's your favorite Bible story? If it's this one, Jesus is here. And you can share him even from the story of Elisha and the She-Bears. Now tonight, I thought before we left, we would take a few minutes and pray together as a church body. So, I have I have a, a, a prayer request. And I have a family in our church. And, and the Lord knows the names and He knows the needs. But they've been weighing heavy on my heart the past, past week or so. Um, so, would you pray for them? Just join me in praying for them if you would, please. Does anybody else have any requests you'd like to mention for prayer tonight? Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness.